Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Rupert Reed to the Sustainability Agenda. Rupert is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia, a Green Party campaigner and a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. He's dedicated much of his life to working at local, national and international level in the fight against climate collapse. His most recent book is Parents for a Future, where he argues that loving our children can prevent climate collapse. Well, thank you very much, Rupert, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Pleased to be here. Great. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your new book, Parents for a Future, and also the work you've been doing for for some years now, for many years, decades as an activist, but particularly, I guess, at the scene a little bit with with your work with Extinction Rebellion and other other, uh, projects as well. Um, And maybe a good place to start if you just can just introduce yourself, as it were, to listeners a little bit about what you do and, you know, how you got there. Yeah, so I'm Rupert Reed. I teach at the University of East Anglia. I teach mainly philosophy. For a number of years, my work has been converging more on political and eco-philosophy. And in that way, my life has been sort of coming together in the sense that for many years, I've been a political and eco-activist in all sorts of contexts, non-violent direct action movements, a lot of work in the Green Party. I've been an elected uh, councillor. And then I suppose my life kind of changed a bit a few years ago. Uh, I came to a realisation that life as we know it is not going to go on um, as we know it and that this uh, this truth needs to be faced up to. It was summed up for me in a phrase that popped into my head, literally popped into my head a few years ago, this civilization is finished by which I mean that if we're going to carry on living in collective ways, in large scales, in anything like the kind of ways that we are used to, we're nevertheless going to have to change everything. We're going to have to transform our civilization in order to save it. And the word transform needs to be taken quite literally here. It's not just about thinking if we get to power everything by renewable energy, we can go on in essentially the same way, the kind of garbage that Bill Gates is peddling uh, at the moment, for example. No, we're going to have to transform the way that we live. We're going to have to use less energy. We're going to have to live more uh, locally and more things that we could discuss. So this realisation came to me and I spoke about it um, gradually, haltingly, Uh, in public, because I was really worried that the idea that we simply cannot go on as we are, that this was going to go down very badly, and I was going to be attacked, that people were going to be demoralized. But in fact, the exact opposite pretty much turned out to be the truth. And I found that these talks were having more resonance than anything I'd ever done before, Um, especially when it came to the lecture that I gave at Cambridge a few years ago called The Civilization is Finished, which became a bit of a viral sensation. And right around the same time, several people independently said to me, Rupert, you've got to check out this new nascent group, Extinction Rebellion. They're they're saying the same kind of thing as you, but they've also got a plan. They've got a plan of what to do about it. So I was one of the early 
watchers of uh, Gail Brabuck's brilliant video, Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. And as soon as I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, this is what I've been waiting for. Got in touch with Gail that day, had a long, amazing conversation, threw myself into Extinction Rebellion. I helped Extinction Rebellion go public with the, the letter, you know, the multi-signed letter we did in The Guardian, which... Um, Really announced Extinction Rebellion to the world. And then I helped launch Extinction Rebellion, co-emceeing the launch events at Parliament, where we did our first serious direct action, blocking vehicular access to the House of Parliament. And I eulogized Greta Thunberg, who was there, and and so forth, and, and didn't look back really. So for the next um couple of years, uh Extinction Rebellion was kind of my life, and I found myself, you know, on all sorts of um national and international media. I did the Today program. I did Question Time and much more besides. Uh, and, you know, it was brilliant. Um, but I have now moved on from Extinction Rebellion for a number of reasons. But really, the, the, the key reason I'd like to stress here is that I came to the belief that Extinction Rebellion was not going to be a vehicle for a large enough scale of involvement that it was perceived as too spiky, that it had made too many PR mistakes, that it, its appeal wasn't wide enough. It, it tried to have a really wide appeal, and I really supported that aspect of what XR was doing. But in the end, it hasn't managed to, to follow through on that. And I wanted to deliver then on the idea I've had for many years, but which again has really sort of crystallized for me in the last few years, that actually what we need to do is we need to get caregivers, parents, guardians, grandparents, uncles and aunts. We need to get adults to step up and take responsibility. It's not We can't leave it to children. We can't leave it to the school climate strikers and Fridays for Future. That's an abnegation of our responsibility. And XR isn't going to do this appealing to a wide enough tranche of parents. We need a sort of moderate version of what XR is trying to do at a larger scale. Um, and so that's really the genesis of the idea of uh, Parents for a Future. Right, right. Very, very interesting journey. And I'd like just maybe to get a little bit of a more detail about just the, that synoptic view you have of, of Extinction Rebellion, which is very, very interesting. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a COVID crisis, these many interlinked uh, environmental and other social crises that we're, we're facing right now. What aspect of the current situation would you say is engaging you the most right now? Well, I am very engaged with the uh, the COVID crisis, happening since the beginning, partly because it's an absolute textbook case for the need for precautionary action to be taken, for precautionary thinking to move ahead of the disasters, ahead of the potential catastrophe, ahead of the impacts, which some countries did, countries like New Zealand and Taiwan, uh, and other countries didn't, uh, like the USA and the UK. So the crisis has made me very angry and I've been very actively involved in talking about it, writing about it, protesting in relation to it. And one crucial dimension I've sought to bring out, and this really, this is so crucial, it can't be overemphasized. The COVID crisis is part of the climate and ecological emergency. It's not some separate thing which happens to sort of coincide with it in interesting ways. It is quite literally part of it. The evidence is now really quite clear that COVID and similar future pandemics are probabilified by climate chaos and climate breakdown, and global overheat. 
And there's a real danger, in fact, that there's going to be an enormous increase in pandemics this century unless we somehow manage to bring the climate crisis under some form of control. The epidemic, the pandemic, was sparked by habitat destruction driven by the absolute mania for global economic growth, which still grips most of the planet. It was enacted, if you will, by animal cruelty. Animal cruelty is how it was vectored, how it came to us. And then it was spread all over the world by completely out of control jet travel. Jet planes are the real super spreaders. They are real villains of the peace, just like in the in the climate uh, crisis. Uh, and the answer to it uh, is to tackle the root causes of the climate and ecological emergency is stop is to stop treating other animals as if we owned them, is to rein in air travel, is to reinstate localization as the default. The COVID crisis really is a dimension of the climate and ecological emergency. If we want more pandemics, the best thing to do is not tackle that long emergency. If we want to be precautious, if we want to learn the lessons, the lessons all point in uh, the same direction. So that's where quite a bit of my uh, work is uh, at present. Um, and, um, you know, I think that uh, XR is still super relevant to the situation and I'm still cooperating with people in XR and uh, I think that XR is 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 great. Um, but I don't think that XR is the, is the, I think we need an ecosystem, if you will, an ecology of, of, of groups that are going to try to tackle what we're up against here. Uh, and I'm working now with the, growing parents movement i'm working with organizations such as parents for future which was modeled on fridays for future uh mothers rise up uh, and those elements of xr which are which are in this uh, in this ballpark uh, and it's it's a very exciting moment because i do believe this is one of the last best chances that we have if we can get parents to understand parents and get caregivers to understand that the crisis that we're now facing, the, the climate and ecological emergency driven by economic insanity and manifested at the present time through the COVID pandemic, if we can get parents to understand that no one is riding to the rescue to fix this, that the COP is, is not going to, the climate COP is not going to fix this, the politicians are not going to fix this, the scientists are increasingly recognising that their mode of engaging with this crisis has not uh, worked. Uh, and that and it's far too big for them that we need mass citizens involvement if we can get enough enough people with a sense of responsibility to recognize that and to recognize that they can't outsource this issue any longer then we have a chance of acting on it in time still even now yeah i'm, I'm interested in your use of language and you talk about a climate and ecological emergency and what happens when you call it an emergency and i know there have been some critiques of uh, Extinction Rebellion from many scientists, climate scientists, that there's this urgency, 12 years, uh, too late, saying just is scientifically wrong, but also potentially terrifying and, and counterproductive, you know, a lot of grief amongst young people. So I'm just wondering about how, how useful that is a way of framing what's happening at the moment. And, and linked to that is, is a really essential question that once you have emergencies, that they beget authoritarian governance in response so you know that's looming yeah so that's a really important multi-dimensional question let me try to tackle the different dimensions of it so so look i'm by no means an uncritical advocate of the emergency framing 
in the appendix to my book, uh, Extinction Rebellion, Insights from the Inside, I offer some critiques of that framing. In particular, if, if we understand this as an emergency, which I think in a very, very real sense it is, it's, it's profoundly urgent now. If we don't act on it now, I'll come back to this point, if we don't act on it now, we're going to be term- terminally F-U-C-K-E-D'd. Um, it's, it's, it's deeply urgent um, in the first instance because of the fact that the post-COVID reset is already happening, it's starting now, and it's going to move into, into serious gear as the vaccines roll out. And the way that that reset occurs, the way, in other words, that the next 12 months unfolds, well, that will determine how the whole of this decade unfolds. The money that is spent now can't be spent again. The infrastructure that is built now can't be built again. The next 12 months are absolutely critical for this decade. And this decade, we know, is absolutely critical for any chance of preventing climatically induced civilizational uh, meltdown. So it's no exaggeration this time. Absolutely no exaggeration to say that it's about now. It's about what we do now. It's not about what we do in five years' time or 12 years' time. It's about what we do now. And in that sense, the emergency framing is, I think, fair. But it does have to be understood that this emergency is profoundly different from from emergencies that we are used to. It's a long emergency, as it has been called. It truly is a marathon, uh, not a sprint. We have to be really careful not to to burn out. And we need to build resilience in and build in this marathonness of what we face. Basically, the climate and ecological emergency is a long emergency which will define the entirety of our lives. And that is true even if you're listening to this and you're a, you're a school child or a university student. This is not going away. It's a condition uh, for our existence now. Right. I mean, the idea of emergency does kind of imply some time-limited kind of radical decisive action. But clearly, you know, even if we take all kinds of actions, we've seen some kind of fall off from carbon emissions during COVID, you know, this thing is built in, you know, the scale of carbon emissions already. So I, I just wonder whether you can say on the one hand, an emergency, and, and it's not a sprint, it's it just seems to be uh, it gets to the heart of that question, I suppose, of the, the rhetoric of it's too late. And there's a lot of that around. And there's a lot of press children. This, this semantic question is an interesting question. As I say, uh, we can call it an emergency, provided we understand its, its profound difference from previous emergencies, provided we understand that it's a new kind of long emergency. Or we could say that we're not going to call it uh, an emergency. But one way or another, we have to convey to people the gravity, the severity, and the urgency of this. Uh, and some scientists' rhetoric on this, um, pushing back against it, has been incredibly unhelpful. Scientists need to understand that they are, in virtually all cases, not experts at communications, and that the way that they talk can quite often have the paradoxical effect of kind of calming people down even when the content of what they're saying, if one really listened to it, is extremely terrifying. And and here's the bottom line, Virgil. If you're not sometimes terrified by the situation that we're in, then you're not paying attention. And not enough people have been (laughs) terrified and woken up, frankly, to, to what's going on. Greta herself says, look, I want you to panic. I want you to act like our house is on fire, because it is. And I think that there's something really right about that rhetoric. Now, let's turn to the point about the the effect of uh, scaring people, so-called mental ill health, the effect on younger people, etc. Well, of course, Greta herself was one of those 
was one of those people. And what I say on this issue is this. When I, when I talk to school climate strikers about this, what they actually say to me is, don't hold back. We want you to come out and tell us absolutely clearly how bad that is. And when I give my talks, young people quite often say to me things like, this feels like the first time that any adult is leveling with me about the severity of the situation. And when people typically right-wing media pundits and so forth push back and say, oh, you're scaring young people, I respond to them and say, and say this, how dare you? How dare you say it's us that's scaring young people? What's scaring young people is the situation of the world that they're waking up to and that you right-wing pundits, et cetera, are trying to cover up and are in fact making worse. And you intend to make this worse, this situation worse for the next 30 odd years, even if you're in favor of net zero by 2050, that's making a terrible existential threat worse for the next 30 years. Absolutely, profoundly irresponsible. There, there has been momentum, hasn't there? I think since you, you'll have seen this very clearly in terms of the awareness and acceptance. I mean, clearly yeah. a longer journey to, to go, but in no small part to Greta, to Extinction Rebellion, to Sunrise, to Climate, to, you know, yeah. there is tremendous momentum. And, yeah. and even was David Roberts and Vice was talking about this. There was an idea that, you know, once people accepted, you know, and understood that there was a climate crisis that, you know, of course, they would understand and, and, and start to be uh, consider and, and open to, you know, progressive solutions and so forth. But actually, you, you, you know, it, it's not necessarily the case. There's a whole right wing, you know, uh, agenda there that will say, yes, well, we have got a climate crisis, but what we need to do is close our borders and, and very profitable uh, business activities built on the back of it. I mean, Mark Carney said that this was the, the great uh, investment opportunity of our age or something like that. But so this idea that once you're aware of the, the scale of the problem, that that's something that therefore certain kinds of actions will follow, follow through from that. But so I'm, I'm just interested in the change that there ha- there is this momentum now and you've been part of that and 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 how does that change things a little bit presumably it will change also i mean and, and i understand you're not involved in extinction rebellion anymore but i guess in the way they think about it because because there is this increased understanding yeah absolutely i mean really the most important moment in extinction rebellion was the april 2019 rebellion that was the game changer because it's absolutely clear that that's when we forced public opinion to move and opinion really shifted absolutely demonstrably in the polls. And it hasn't looked back. A majority of the British population recognised that there was a climate and uh, a nature uh, emergency. And in that sense, there is now the potential for real action to be taken. But of course, what's implicit in your question is that it remains remains very much only a potential. Uh, And in many ways, the story of Extinction Rebellion and so forth and, and of the school climate strikes is a heroic and wonderful story of success. In many ways, it's a story of, of tragic failure um, because, as Greta is the first to point out, hardly any real action has been taken to change course. And this is absolutely this is absolutely disastrous. So one thing I'm very much hoping this year and expecting is that by the end of this year, we will have a lot more scientists coming out and saying, not the rubbish that some scientists said before about, oh, Extinction Rebellion are doom mongers or something, but a lot more scientists coming out and saying, you know what, this is right, this is spinning out of our control. We and the scientists are utterly disappointed in the, in the process and in the lack of action from leaders and so forth uh, on this. And sort of 
as I said before, it's over to you. It's over to the citizens. Yes. It's over, I would say, in particular to parents to try to stand up and, and protect uh, their children. We have to protect these young ones who uh, depend on us, who, you know, much, much though I'm afraid, frankly, for what my old age is, is going to be like, but I'm even more afraid for the life that my nieces and nephews uh, are going to have. And it's time for us, it's time for us to, to step up and face this and, and demand action. And also where necessary, Fogel, to take action. And this is another part of, uh, of what's changing for me is that more than Extinction Rebellion did, uh, I'm focused quite a lot now on what's, uh, what's called transformative adaptation, on, on transforming, uh, as I said before, and also on adapting, um, because the climate disasters, climate chaos is here, and it's going to get worse for quite a while, whatever we do. Um, and we need to adapt to that situation. We need to adapt to it in a transformative way. And we cannot rely on governments, et cetera, to, to lead on doing that for us. Frankly, in a country like the UK, they're not going to. So we're going to have to take some of that into our own hands. And that means things like trying to create local uh, food security and, and resilience where we live in our communities. That needs to be a key part of the agenda for the 2020s. Very interesting. Because that comes to the heart of, of your book. Who's the audience for this book? And why did you feel it's crucial now to, to talk to them? Yeah. So I'm hoping with this book to appeal to a wider audience than my previous books have had. Who's the audience? In a nutshell, it's it's parents, or in fact, even broader still than that. Parents is 80-odd uh, percent of the population. But uh, as I've implied, it's not just parents even. It's parents, any caregivers, guardians, aunts, uncles, anyone who has any kind of stake in the future. Because you know, in a very meaningful sense, that's what our, our children are to us. They're what exists of us after we're gone. And we claim to love them above uh, all else. Uh, and I believe that claim. I completely want to believe that claim. I want to go along with it. And what I seek to do in the book is to lay out the consequences of that claim. I make this argument. It's a sort of philosophical argument, a kind of logical argument, but it's quite easy to follow. And I think it's quite inexorable. I say, look, if you accept that maybe there's a really terrible environmental crisis, you don't even have to accept that it's definitely as bad as I think it is. You just have to accept that maybe it is, because then that's enough to leverage the precautionary principle. If it's if it's maybe present and if it is present, it would be absolutely catastrophic, then we've got to act on it. Um, if you accept that maybe there's a really dire environmental crisis, and if you love your own children, then it follows from that, that you have to extend that love into the future, because you have to make it possible for them to love their own children. Yeah, it's not, it's not real love, if the world is going to fall apart in 40 years time, you know, after you're gone, but they're they're still here and their children are, are just, you know, making their way into the world or whatever. So we have to try to facilitate ongoing life, because of course, this principle, this, this idea iterates, it continues generation after generation. The same is true for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. So just really loving our children means that we have to have a care for distant future generations, for our distant descendants. And that means that we have to care long-term for nature, for ecosystems, for the world, because we're not going to have a future for our great-grandchildren and so forth if they don't have a, a viable world and ecosystem to live in. 
Yeah. And is the logic as well here that that this is a way that you talk about the scientists and, you know, it's it has been problematic the way scientists think about things, risk and probability and all those kind of things. So there's issues about the way scientists have communicated. So is there a sense that 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 underlying this is that by communicating to parents, you will get them on board? This will speak to their interests, speak to their deep concerns and motivate them to take action. Totally. That is exactly what I hope. And so I want to urge, obviously, anyone listening to this to, to get the book and read it. And I hope to, to share it. You know, I've already heard, heard some encouraging stories of people getting the book and sharing it with their relatives or whatever. You know, that's what we need. I'm trying to appeal here way beyond the converted, you know, way beyond the cognoscenti, way beyond the activist class, etc. We need a far, far broader buy-in. You think of Fridays for Future. Great. What we need is something, I'm calling it Parents for a Future, which is the same kind of thing, but on a much larger scale and mainly consisting of adults taking responsibility for the future, understanding that we cannot any longer outsource our hopes for the future to politicians, to business people, etc., that they are letting us down, that they're not doing enough, that they're moving, but that they're not moving nearly, nearly fast enough, that we've got to make this happen swiftly. We've got to start now, as I said earlier because of the post-COVID reset and also the crucially important climate COP uh, this year. Uh, and what I'm hoping is that when people understand that to really succeed in, in loving your own children now, you can't just do things like, you know, look after them carefully and look after their health and make sure they get into a nice school and that sort of stuff. You know, they're not going to have a world to get old in, or at least they're not reliably going to have that. Um, unless we transform our civilization uh, within the coming decade uh, or so. And that means that we need to move way beyond where we've been. It's not enough to do the standard things. You know, it's great to, to vote well and to lobby your MP and to be an ethical consumer and so forth. But everybody knows that those things are not going to be enough now. So the kind of things we need, we need people to take real serious action in their yes. workplaces to change the, their workplaces. There's something that at the heart of what you're saying, which I, I'm trying to understand, you know, at the heart of if this is a call to pay attention, to, you know, the welfare of our children, key part of that is their children's children. And, and yet you strongly argue that, you know, you say in, in the book, it's pretty obvious the unprecedented numbers of humans on the planet come at the expense of unprecedented reductions in the numbers of other beings. So I, I just that, that's one part of it. I'm just interested in, in the tension there between our children and our children's children and, and the whole question of, you know, uh, uh, population growth, which you do t talk about in the book. And also... And also, I'm throwing a lot in here. Sorry, um, you know, but I'm just wondering about the, the moral calculus at work here, and how 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 to frame and think about this, how how to weigh up the needs and welfare of my children's children, and today's dispossessed. You know, we know there are two two billion people suffering from malnutrition in the world. You know, uh, one and a half billion food insecure, whatever those kind of figures from the UN, the huge scale of, sure. of dispossession. So, uh, sorry, a lot in there, but I'm just interested in, in, the, yeah, in yeah. the tension between this, uh, our children's children, and also some critical comments you've got about the growth of population and, and, and what the impact it would have on animals and, and, and so forth, and, uh, and also the moral calculus. Well, look, anyone who um, thinks that having more and more human beings doesn't come at the expense of, ha of having space for wildlife in the planet, I would, I would 
beg them to explain to me why it is that uh, numbers of uh, wildlife in the world has uh, decreased by over half during my lifetime. Of course, a lot of it's to do with profligacy and corporate malfeasance and so forth. But, you know, where are these animals to go? I mean, if there's endlessly more and more human beings, right, where are the animals to go? It's just kind of denialism, really, for people to to pretend that human population levels have no impact on our impact. Of course they do. Our impact is a result of our numbers multiplied by our footprint, right? And, of course, those with heavier footprints bear far more responsibility. But it's just, it's just... It's just illogical to pretend that, that actual numbers have got nothing to do with it. You are arguing at your heart that we, we should consider our children's desire and, you know, feeling for having their own children. Yeah. So how does that match, you know, say, yes, we, if you're a good parent, you should care about your children and you love them and we accept that. And if you love them, you love their ability to flourish as, a, as an adult to have their children. So, you know, that says, go for it, you know, have your children. You, you should. No, no. No, I don't say in the book, um, please have have children or please have as many children as possible. What I do is I start from where we are, right? And where we are is the population that we have. And where we are is that most people in the world find part of the fulfillment uh, in their life uh, in having children and and growing up uh, and in having those children grow up as as well as possible. Uh, And my belief is absolutely passionately that I want to support uh, the children uh, of the world and that's why, Fergal, as it happens, in my own case, I decided not to have children, right? So I could devote myself to trying to make the world a better place for the children that there are. So I'm not saying, you know, go forth and multiply. What I'm saying is I'm starting from facts about the way the world is and the way that human beings are. And you ask, um, well, what about the dispossessed? Well, absolutely, of course. You know, of course, we should take care of the dispossessed and so on and so forth. But what I'm trying to do in this book, you see, is to make a much broader appeal. I'm trying to say there are plenty of people out there who, for good or for ill, they don't spend a lot of their time thinking about the dispossessed. They spend most of their time thinking about um, their own family, etc. Now, rather than moralize and say, you know, how terrible, what disgusting people, my response is to say, okay, how can we involve those people uh, in what we're doing and in the way we're thinking? And I think what I've come up with is, a, is an argument which I think is pretty watertight for how we can. In other words, it, you, in order to care deeply about um, the future and about making a better future for all the world and for all the beings in it, you don't have to start with some kind of absolute sort of ethical Mother Teresa-like commitment to the dispossessed. You just need to start with an understanding that we're on the verge of a terrifying environmental meltdown uh, and to be serious about loving your own kids. See, that's the beauty of the argument that I'm making, that it has this potentially incredibly wide appeal that people who who they're, what they're about is their their family. Um, they can relate to this just as much as somebody who's whatever, a lifelong activist who's been uh, arguing for a radical redistribution, redistribution to help the world's dispossessed for their whole lives. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, 
It works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. You know, I'm a parent and <laughs> clearly I uh, have this on my mind doing this podcast and so forth. And, and absolutely thinking about it through the lens of, of and you just learn so much as well. And, 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 you know, my children and their contemporaries are, are they care about so much of this. And, and clearly they will be living in the world that we are creating today. And so I'm absolutely with you there. I mean, the other question, which I guess is, is something that I, I'm, I'm trying to understand is the, this kind of we we talk about, who, who, who the we is. Because I suppose, you know, that this is a concern that without going into detailed statistics, we know that 100 companies are responsible for, you know, the massive bulk of climate emissions, the top 1%, hugely more carbon emissions than than, than the the 50% poorest in the world. You know, so there are, there are differentiated responsibilities. And yeah you know, massive. And, and the, we, we, we also know, I think, that the impact of the climate will tend to tend to the people who bear the, the heaviest burden will tend to be the poorest and the dispossessed. So that's something at the back of my mind. I was looking through the, the index. I didn't see anything, any reference in the text to, you know, our current economic system in, in terms of neoliberalism. Now, maybe that's a bit of a bogey word and it, it, it conjures all kinds of ideas as well. But I guess this question of responsibility and power relations, which is uh, seems to be an important one. I mean, how do you think about that with respect to uh, your latest thinking in the book? Yeah, yeah. So, look, as I said earlier, absolutely, there are, as you put it, differential responsibilities here. And those with heavier footprints, et cetera, bear a larger uh, responsibility. And those with more power. Um, in terms of the 100 companies, though, I think that, that that statistic is can be used in a slightly facile way. Let's be clear and honest. Those companies, most of them, you know, they deliver stuff that many of us uh, use and we're involved in this system. So this is why I think Extinction Rebellion has it basically uh, right on this front. Extinction Rebellion has said, look, this is not about... Um, uh, calling people out. This is about calling people in. This is not about saying, "Oh, those terrible people over there." This is about this is about being clear that this is a change that we all have to make together. But that is not the same as saying that everyone bears the same responsibility, um, or everyone will have to make the same kind of changes. Right? Those who will have to make the bigger changes surely are those who are at the moment more responsible, living more profligately, etc. So, to cut to the chase, I would completely agree that if we're going to have a future, it's going to have to be a lot more equal than the society that we live in now. But the way I suggest we reach that conclusion is by starting from the nature of this long emergency uh, that we're in and by looking at the kinds of changes that are going to need to be made in order for us to survive it uh, together, a bit like we did during the Second World War when we instituted food rationing, right? We didn't institute food rationing because we were anti-capitalists or socialists or whatever. We instituted food rationing because it was a way to survive. Uh, and it made society a lot more equal. It also made the population more healthier, by the way, which is a nice uh, thing to uh, remember. Is that the kind of thing that's coming in the future? Uh, yeah, I think it is. There will be something like uh, food rationing at some point in the next generation or so. If there isn't, there will be collapses. Because to come to your point about how the poorest and the dispossessed are the most vulnerable, 
Well, that appears to be true right now, and it may well remain true. And, and it's really important. You know, it's really important to be clear about, for example, the way that um, that climate is impacting Bangladesh horribly and, and stands to impact, obviously, very horribly on low-lying island states and so forth. Whereas people, you know, living on higher ground and richer people and so forth are li likely to get away with it uh, uh, more. But, you know, we shouldn't be too complacent about that, actually. I think that some activists who use this kind of line and say, you know, it's, it's the poorest who are going to suffer the most. I think that they may be making a, a twofold mistake. They may be making a mistake rhetorically because they're not doing what I'm doing, which is seeking to find a way of bringing everyone in and bringing everyone on board and making a wide appeal to parents and making appeal, an appeal beyond people who think of themselves as left wing or greens or whatever. You know, we have to appeal to intelligent, enlightened, self-interested um, people on the so-called right as well you know people who actually want to conserve things people who who care about the heritage of their country and about posterity and care about their families and so forth we have to find ways of effectively appealing to them too so the first thing i think that that we mustn't miss is the real importance of making a, a broad enough rhetorical appeal to achieve a, a big enough movement and the second thing is that i just think that it may turn out to be factually false that it's, uh, that it's mainly the poor and dispossessed who are the most vulnerable. Consider the COVID crisis, right? Think if, if somebody had said to you two years ago, there's going to be a terrible pandemic and uh, it's going to be global and the, the great majority of the people who die from it are going to be from rich countries, you would have said, you know, you're crazy. Uh, that's obviously not going to happen, right? And if any pandemic that sweeps the world, which most people were barely imagining a couple of years ago, any pandemic that sweeps the world is obviously going to affect people most who are, you know, in, in slums and uh, poor people and, and, and so forth. But that hasn't turned out to be the case. Why? Well, a key reason why is because the polities of the US and UK and also Brazil uh, have been really defective. The, the, the pandemic has hit hard countries which were not precautious, countries which tried to, quote, keep their economies open, countries which are more individualistic, countries, countries which are less communitarian, less resilient. And countries like, you know, uh, countries like India has done remarkably well. Sierra Leone has done incredibly well. Vietnam. This is really surprising. We should learn from this. It seems to me that um, it is quite possible that countries like the UK will turn out over the next generation to be very vulnerable to climate breakdown. One specific reason why the UK is vulnerable, of course, is because the UK is at the, at the present time massively unable to feed itself, which is a crazy position to be in as you go into the, the new world that we're yeah. going into. So, so I, I say to people, don't be too confident. I, I think that <laughs> I think that some activists in countries like the UK, at the back of their minds, they're kind of thinking, you know what? We're going to be sort of a right during the climate crisis, and so I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm just going to make kind of more appeals about um, the way this is impacting on on the poor and the vulnerable around the world. Yeah. And I say to them, you know what? You could be vulnerable too. We could be vulnerable too. This is going to hit hard any country which is not organised in a way that puts care and community and long termism uh, at the heart of what it does. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Very interesting. I'd like to talk a little in a moment about citizens' assemblies and your vision for that. And, and maybe if we've time to 
precautionary principle because I know you've done work on this and thought about it. But I just wonder also in what you're saying there, I mean, you don't have to be anti-capitalist to recognize there are bad actors. There are ac- actors with particular economic incentives. Sure, like sure. The fuel industry. We live at a particular age in the economic age in terms of deregulation, in terms of economic power, in terms of ability to you know overlook uh, regulations and uh, power of lobbying and that kind of thing without going too much into it. But there is a danger possibly that you know uh, letting people off the hook, letting bad actors off the hook, and and also some of the excesses within the system. And I'm just just wondering, because what you talk about in this broad rhetorical and this broad uh, communication and movement, which is very a powerful vision, um, there's also, I suppose, a, a way of looking at things. Well, you know, uh, let's be very practical here. Let's think of the low hanging fruit. Let's think of the 80-20. Let's think of the points of leverage in the system where we could have maximum impact. You know, and, and you, as you say about the top 100 companies, we're all consumers. We're all somehow embedded in this system. But I guess with the Kyoto Protocols, they they managed to get a significant number, all the key players in a room, in a way, to deal with the ozone uh, problem. So I suppose there's some kind of vision that, you know, by focusing on a smaller number of players, maybe. I'm just interested in in what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I think you mean the Montreal uh, Protocol. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, I'm not saying that, that the approach which I'm recommending in Parents for a Future is the only approach we should take. What I am saying is I think it's a necessary part of any chance that we will do enough to transform in the coming years. Uh, And I hope it's very clear from this podcast that it would be a a total mistake to call someone like me a a doom monger. I'm laying out a vision here for how we can still um, save ourselves and still transform. But you know what? We have to be very careful what we hope for and what we aspire for and how we talk about that. Because if we talk about our aspirations in in a hopelessly unrealistic way, if we say, oh, well, you know, it's all going to be fine. We're just going to have lots of wonderful green energy and no one's really going to have to change because we think that talking that way is the way is the sort of path of least resistance. Then we're on a hiding to nothing. And similarly, if we if we think that we can do everything that we need to do through action, which is which is with sort of internal um, action, um, talking to people behind the scenes, et cetera, only, or if we think we can do it all through the, the legal system, um, you know, uh, James Thornton and Client Earth are doing brilliant stuff at the moment. But is that going to be enough by itself? And it, yeah. It's patently not going to be enough, right? Because we need to change the laws and we need to change people's practices and we need to change people's um, sense of the, of the whole situation. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book, Ch- change people's sense of, how what the, what they can how they can contribute and and whether they can rely on others to make enough of a contribution so what i'm really saying is we need everything fergal we need pe- we need people working on all levels but definitely part of what needs to happen is we need a mass citizen involvement like we've never seen it before and, and that would be that would be activated through workplaces that would be activated through strikes maybe some of it through nonviolent uh, direct action only if we get something like that, along with all the other stuff, including working behind the scenes and so forth, only if we get something like that do we have, it seems to me, any realistic hope now of turning this super tanker around. 
Yeah, and that's very interesting uh, because presumably you think that's a missing ingredient. That's a crucial element. Yeah. Also, an empowering vision and 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 one which gets beyond the you know which which is uh, a response to the sense of emergency, to the urgency, the empowering sense that there is something that you can do, that we can work together, that this is everybody that we are at one level. Although there are power relations which are very important, and you know we've yeah. on that, but that. It, it's everybody's involved. And I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about your vision for uh, uh, citizens' assemblies? Why do you think that they ha- have a particularly crucial and, and uh, helpful and will have a helpful role in, 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 in the future? Yeah. So the book has five chapters. It's not a long book. Uh, I hope that a lot of people are going to find that it's quite, you know, readable, usable, portable. Um, in chapter four, I talk about, look, what are the kinds of changes that we need to make at the institutional level if we're actually going to make this big change in our paradigm, if we're going to make it work, if we're going to make it stick. And as you say, one of those changes that I emphasize is the one which XR has made so central, is the idea of, uh, of citizens' assemblies. And I talk about how citizens' assemblies offer a real kind of way of breaking the, some of the impasses that we find ourselves in at the present time. And that, and that smart politicians will, I think, increasingly realize this, that, that there are some issues that are just too difficult for ordinary politics to tackle. Uh, and the, the vast climate and ecological agenda is to some extent one of those um, issues. If politicians were willing, if they were willing to be bold enough to outsource some of their power, as it were, to citizens, to a citizens' uh, assembly or citizens' assemblies, um, then there is a real chance, it seems to me, that the logjam could be broken because the politicians would then be able to have a kind of deniability. They'd be able to say, look, it's not, it's, they, w- the burden wouldn't all fall on them. They wouldn't have to do all the leadership. They would be able to say, look, you know, we decided to give this to the citizens to decide. And this is what the citizens decided. So now, you know, we, it would give them cover. Uh, and that is, I think, a really, really crucial point. So what I'm really hoping, I, I don't expect this, you know, I'm not, I'm not in that sense optimistic, but what I'm hoping for, what I think we should be driving for, what is still it what is what is still possible to achieve, and if we had a huge parents' movement, it could be achieved, is putting pressure on ordinary politicians to temporarily pass some of their power over to citizens who would be randomly selected, like a jury. Um, to decide how we get through this, to, to decide how we face this emergency uh, together. And the hope is that everybody in the society would be able to recognize, as typically people do recognize of, of juries, of ordinary juries, that the citizens are would, there, would become through this process of deliberation and hearing expertise and so on, would become kind of experts and would be well-placed to actually make this decision uh, on the part of the rest of us. This is how citizens' assemblies are superior to government by plebiscite or government by opinion poll, because the citizens who get onto the assemblies get to learn about stuff in depth and think about it in depth. And if you look at what the the UK um, parliamentary citizens' assembly came up with last year, and if you look at the what the French Citizens' Assembly, the Climate Assembly have come up with. It's very exciting stuff. What we need is for those citizens' assemblies to be given the actual democratic power to put into practice what they come up with. So you're optimistic the way it's evolving at the moment. You see more possibility here. And as a kind of root foundation in all democracies, in a sense. Yeah, uh, and it could go on beyond democracies too. You know, there's no reason why why a country, uh, an authoritarian country like China, shouldn't have the foresight 
to do something like this. But am I optimistic? Well, as I hinted a few minutes ago, not particularly, or, or at least it depends what you mean by optimism. Uh, I look at the situation uh, with my intellect, with the same intellect that concluded a few years ago that this civilization um, is finished, that the only way we get to get through this without collapse is by transforming everything fairly rapidly, such that what comes out the other side, as it were, looks really in many ways nothing like this civilization. I think that that, that process of transformation is possible. I want to try to help midwife it. I, I want us to, to push for it uh, together. Do I think it's likely? I can't honestly say that I think it's likely, but I think it's worth trying for. And what we've got to try for at the same time is to start to, to build institutions and practices and knowledges and wisdoms that will give us a, a softened landing uh, if what occurs is some kind of uh, collapse. And that's the importance of transformative adaptation, that we that we recognize the reality that we're going to have to adapt to this, this damaged ecosystem and damaged climate that we've created for ourselves, that we try to transform uh, at scale, uh, and that whatever happens, we are at least practiced enough in the transformation that we're that we're bringing about, including in our local communities, that if things really do start to go uh, belly up, that we that we have a, a, a through path on this. What do you mean by transformative adaptation? Yeah, so transformative adaptation, as I use the the, the term, it's a term which uh, deserves the label of transformation. If you see what I mean, in other words, we're taking really seriously that everything has to change. We have to change the way we live anyway so that we can flourish. We need to work with nature rather than against nature. And mitigation needs to be built into it. So what does this agenda look like in practice? Well, it looks like looks like things like relocalization, uh, real food uh, security and food sovereignty. It looks like uh, uh, rewilding, restoration of, uh, of mangrove swamps and wetlands as a way of dealing with flooding rather than just brittle, shallow adaptational responses like building higher seawalls and so forth. Uh, and so transformative adaptation is a sort of hopeful, grounded, probably mainly bottom-up way of, uh, of dealing with the very, very difficult situation into which we are moving. I think it's going to be a big theme uh, of the 2020s. I'm outlining it right now in a series of articles in Permaculture uh, magazine, which uh, folks might want to take a look at. There's also deep adaptation, of course. Um, and deep adaptation means adaptation which is actually uh, directly considering the possibility or likelihood of a collapse. And I strongly believe that deep adaptation, which clearly has some overlap with transformative adaptation, but deep adaptation needs to be undertaken too. Not because I'm a doom monger, no, not because I believe that we're doomed, but because I believe that we can no longer rule out the possibility of societal uh, collapse. And if we don't prepare against that possibility, if we don't have any insurance policy, as it were, then it would be really, really bad. So also, I think that uh, undertaking deep adaptation is um, a smart way of making real to ourselves just how uh, tough and dire uh, the situation is. So I say let's do transformative adaptation and let's do deep adaptation, not because we're giving up, on the contrary, because we want to be prepared for whatever is coming and because we want to make what is coming as good as possible. So I'm collaborating with Jim Bendel, the founder of Deep Adaptation, even though I'm not as pessimistic uh, as he is. I'm collaborating with him on a book on deep adaptation, which will appear this summer. Transformative adaptation does seem to be something that's been neglected to some degree. A lot of focus on mitigation. Yeah. 
And with the mitigation, there is embedded somehow often some kind of hubristic kind of techno-utopia, well, technocratic kind of sense of approach. So where are we, would you say, with adaptation? And just in terms of the lay of the land, it hasn't received as much attention. Is that changing, do you think, and why? So I think it's starting to change, but it's changing awfully slowly. This was something else I wasn't fully satisfied with in Extinction Rebellion, that I think that XR should be talking more about adaptation uh, and getting people to face up to the fact that we're not going to prevent climate chaos now. We're not going to prevent climate disasters. They are here uh, and we have to adapt. So people have been very nervous about moving to, to centering adaptation because they thought that it involves a kind of giving up. Well, again, it may involve certain kinds of giving up. It, we may have to give up the hope that we can just sort of replace everything that we've got and re, uh, with green energy and repurpose everything and mitigate in that way and carry on as if nothing had changed. I think we have to give that fantasy up. But we don't have to give up the idea that we can even now create better lives for ourselves if we engage in this adaptation process, which is essential, in a way that is transformative. So I think there'll be more and more talk about adaptation and more and more um, action on adaptation. What we need to ensure is that that is done in a way that is compatible with carrying on taking mitigation seriously. And again, you know, transformative adaptation involves mitigation. You know, if you if you're living more locally, if you're improving food security, if you're dealing with rising water levels by doing things like restoring wetlands and restoring mangrove swamps. You know, yes. Well, that's a whole area. I, I'm sure we could have a whole interview or more on. I can't resist before you go asking you how does Wittgenstein inform the way you look at this situation at the moment? Mm. So uh, I begin the Parents for a Future book with a quote from Wittgenstein, uh, where Wittgenstein says, Wittgenstein, my main man in philosophy, uh, Wittgenstein says, Look, the real philosophical problems are not problems of the intellect. They're not about being clever. They're problems of the will. They're problems of being willing to actually face reality, being willing to actually change. And I think that is so profoundly true. Our society, I think, overvalues cleverness in a certain sense. It values sort of uh, nerdiness and big brains and, and coming up with uh, intelligent, seemingly theoretical responses to things. But what it doesn't value enough is the commitment, the drive to actually make those things into realities or to look wider and ask bigger and deeper questions about what we're really aiming for. So, as I say, I think a lot of the discourse around mitigation and climate at the present time is not imaginative enough. It doesn't think enough about what's coming, either in the sense of how bad it could get or in the sense of how different it could be. And we need to be willing to will those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of changed realities. You know, we're going to have to be very, very determined if we're going to get through this. And part of that determination is going to involve a willingness to face climate reality. So, yeah, that is one of the key significances of Wittgenstein for me, that I think he he points one in a better than any other philosopher, philosopher does towards the way that even in philosophy, it's not just about being clever. It's about being willing to, to do what it takes, including to actually face how things are. 
Yes. And presumably as well, in a sense, you know, you talked about the way in which science communicates and so forth. But but presumably a part of this as well is seeing us as embedded in social relations and communities in and hopefully some role for the humanities and for the arts, taking the, the you know, moving the rhetoric from from maybe economists and scientists and including, you know, artists and other kind of uh, figures. Fergal, I couldn't agree more. I think that is so crucial. Again, I talk about that in Parents for a Future. I talk about the huge role that the arts could have in waking us up to the the climate and ecological situation that we face, the reality of it, and getting us to inhabit it, and getting us to consider how we could get through it. You know, I want to see artists sort of painting scenarios of what the future could look like, a future which is terrible, a future which is wonderful, a future which is sort of okay and we manage somehow to muddle through. I want to see these scenarios and I I really call upon artists and writers and so forth to do more of that. And yes, I think that in the in the discourses around these things to date, economists have been way overrepresented. I mean, the so-called Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Nordhaus, absolutely catastrophic influence on climate policy. It would be really good if we could have the voices, not just of scientists, but also of people in the arts and humanities, including philosophers, listened to here in terms of ideas for what would be wise ways of going forward and of course we want to be drawing too heavily on indigenous wisdom and I would say on also on the wisdom that is implicit in uh, peasant societies and peasant cultures which are still very vibrant in large parts of um, South America and uh, and Asia you know let's really broaden the uh, the the field as it were of the of the wisdom that we're willing to consult and let's escape from the the narrow sort of techno-scientific bounds which our culture sometimes uh, places us within. You know, climate scientists have been really trying to do a good job on this for a long time, but they need uh, need our help. They uh, They need more support and we need more perspectives, including the perspective of precaution which is which is crucially philosophical and which goes beyond the evidence and the models that those climate scientists have so tellingly offered us yes yes uh, future has been hollowed out by these dystopian visions and yeah we'll need us the, the, the kind of visions that you're talking about embracing all all of us as parents and yeah together is, is a great vision and uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about all of your work and your great work at extinction rebellion your ongoing activism and your vision for the future well thank you it's been a pleasure i, I feel that we've really drilled into some big uh, meaty topics on this podcast so i appreciate the opportunity if you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda we think you'll enjoy roman krisnarik's thought-provoking new book the good ancestor how to think long-term in a short-term world, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.